Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBM Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBM family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Kashmir of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paul those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources, and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. This episode is brought to you by James Cook Media. This is a company that I founded that helps businesses do world-class marketing to help their world-class products reach the global marketplace. I have assembled a world-class team of digital marketing experts here in Poland that I've personally trained to help you scale your product and get it to the English-speaking market. Learn more about us and what we can do for your business at jamescook.pl. Also, check out our traffic and conversion meetups that I run with Eva Vysotska of Good Tribe Consulting, where you can learn all about the latest marketing strategy and techniques that are being developed here, cutting edge on Google Campus Warsaw with Eva and myself. James Cook Media, we do the marketing so you can focus on your product. Hello again, Project Kajimish listener. This is Sam Cook with your host, Richard Lucas, as always. How are you, Richard? I'm very well. Good afternoon, if it's afternoon when you're listening. Well, it better be afternoon, right, Richard? That's, that's when everything gets done, right? So, so we're back with another episode of Project Kajimish with the founder and... Well, I'll let him describe his role in U2I. It's a very interesting setup. The founder of U2I, which is a top software development house based out of uh, Krakow. In The founder is an American, and Tom Clark is joining us right now on this recording from New York City. I'm in Warsaw, Richards in Krakow. So without further ado, I'm going to let Tom come in and tell us a little bit about his background, his story, and how U2I kind of... Uh, came in existence. So, Tom, let's let's start off with your background. Uh, how did you discover Krakow and get set up there? <laughs> well, back in 2005, it was a really popular thing for software people to start thinking about how can we use the rest of the world to get software built. And at the time, I had a guy, we were maybe a five-person consulting company based entirely in New York City at the time, and we had a guy in the office whose name was Shemek. You can guess where Shemek was from. And so we said to him, what's Poland like? And he said, Poland's great. So we decided to take a trip. And then within six months, we had opened up an office in the back of a an Irish-based real estate storefront on uh, Grodzka in Krakow. Fantastic. And you don't sound completely American yourself. So perhaps you could give a bit more background. Yeah, to, yeah. Yeah. I think to call me American would be, would be stretching the truth. I live in America. This is true. I have been here since 1997. 
But uh, yeah, I was born in London. One of those things, I was offered a job for six months in New York City, and then I just didn't come back. I've since I've since spent a lot more time in Poland than I have in uh, the UK. Okay, so we've got we, it's actually a conversation between three people, none of whom are Polish, uh, none of whom are from Krakow, promoting Kazimierz Krakow and the high tech situation here, which is great because we're very internationalists. But maybe could you just like a one minute background of like where you're from, what you did, what you studied, what the job was? Because we'll move on to your business, but I think it's quite nice, particularly for entrepreneurs, and a lot of our listeners are wannabe entrepreneurs or existing entrepreneurs to know what was the road like until they took the plunge and went into business. I was always interested in this um, computer thing, so I studied computer science. After I finished my degree, I didn't have the will to go work for somebody. This was I was just really struggling with this after I finished university. It's like, I think lots of people, when they finish university, they maybe have an idea that they really want a job. I just totally didn't have an idea that I really wanted a job. So a friend of mine and I decided we were going to go into the web consulting business in 1997. And so we've got an office on top of a small brew your own brewery in Canterbury. And there was the two of us sitting in this room for a while trying to scrape up some web business. We never really succeeded. At the time, I was actually making more money playing in bands than I was from this business. <laughs> that, that's so, backwards. Uh, yeah, I, I funded my passion in computer science by playing in bands. <laughs> um, it's usually the other way around. What, what's your instrument? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a piano player. Awesome. <laughs> So there you were. You, you had an agency on your. I've just gone onto your LinkedIn profile. You had a company called Agency.com, which sounds rather generic. That was not my company. This was where I got. This was my first, more or less, my first proper job. So it turned out I wasn't that good at running a business at the time. So I, we made, as I said, I was making more money playing in a band. And you know, after I think it was less than a year, we decided to wrap the thing up. There was one client which we had been talking with. For those of us based in the UK, it was actually a client working with Channel 4, and we'd been talking with them about building what was really cool at the time, which was a Java applet-based chat thing to go on the Channel 4 website. We were kind of talking about getting this done, but then we decided to give up the business. But then I actually went to work for that company, which was a company called Online Magic, based in London, and then did that project. But then what I was actually hired to do there was actually go straight to New York. So they were. this was at a time when what you did, if you wanted to get cheap developers in New York City... Was you went to London? Really? Uh, the bargain basement of software <laughs> development world was London. How times have changed. <laughs> I was one of these cheap developers brought over from brought over from London to help Online Magic start their uh, New York City office. And then within like eighteen months, this got bought by this company, mentioned Agency.com. Agency.com. It was actually one of the big web agencies at the time. And while I was there, we went public, raised a lot of money. Stock price went up pretty soon after. Stock price went down again, but I, I stayed there for probably a year and a half, two years, at which point I went to work for a startup that uh, one of the guys I'd worked with at onlinemagic.com had become involved with. He was CTO at the time. He became CEO. And it, but this was my first experience of a really bad startup idea. It was really good until this was a advertising-based free ISP, which was a really good idea until February 2000, when you stopped being able to make that kind of money from advertising. And But you were an employee rather than a co-founder there, so you had the thrill and excitement of the startup with none of the upside and also none of the downside, right? Exactly, exactly. And so that led you to consider find, having seen someone else do something miserably unsuccessful through no fault of their own because the market dynamics changed. You then decided to form UTI. Where did the idea come from? Uh, UTI is something different. 
Okay, I understand that. In terms of it's a separate, separate legal entity, where did the idea of UTI come from? Basically, the thing we got right at the 3ISP, like the business model, like was, I remember distinctly having one of those discussions where we were kind of mapping out the business model, and we discovered that there was no scenario, even if we came up with the best possible ideas, the best possible projections, the most optimistic outcomes, there was no way we could possibly make any money ever. So we had a bad business model, but we did actually have really, really good technology. So the guy I left to go work with, it was him and I, we started the, you know, the original version of uh, U2I at that point. We basically said, we're not that good at running these businesses, but we're pretty good at running technology. Let's sell these technology services to other people instead, rather than trying to you know, come up with world domination models or, or something like that. Okay. And I remember from uh, John Shearer, who I met through the first TEDx Krakow conference back in 2010, there were some unusual things about UTI as a business. I didn't hear that direct from you, but I have heard from other people that there is something quite special about the business in terms of its structure and ownership, maybe, or profit share or compensation. Firstly, was I, John's a friend of mine, so I, I wouldn't, and I tell me something that's wrong, but could you run through the things that might make people feel that UTI is an unusual company uh, compared to the sort of the average company in the space, both when you got it founded and also where, to the extent that I'm right that it's unusual, or he's right, you know, where the idea of having an unusual company came from what you're getting at is basically you know we have this idea it's not quite legally sorted out because it actually turns out to be really hard to do this in a in an international company with people in multiple countries but basically what we're trying to do from a conceptual level is give everybody who works at u2i a stake in the business and the reason for this is basically if the way i look at, at software development is software development is best when it's not a service organization in the sense of you know Somebody figures out things to do, tells you, you get it done, and then you hand it over and they go, well, okay, I guess that's kind of what we wanted, or it's not, or something. Software development works best when there's this really intense collaboration between the business folks and the tech folks, you know, particularly when in any of these kind of fields where the technology is the product. Having like, you know, the, the old style sort of throw specs over the wall, can you throw something, you know, maybe working software back thing, just like, just doesn't, that's just not a successful way to run, you know, to actually go from like the most extreme case, like just not having a product at all to having a successful product. So you really need that sort of intense collaboration. You know, that's kind of the overall philosophy of like how we collaborate with our clients. We really focus on trying to break down that barrier. You know, every time we sort of try, it's, it's really tempting as in a client vendor relationship to kind of create value, to create a barrier. But this is really, it tends to be destructive to that kind of, the kind of collaboration you need. So uh, an aspect of that is that, well, we don't want this barrier of like, you know, there's this like pattern, I think, of like British or Americans coming to, I've used the pejorative word, Eastern Europe, making money off the backs of hardworking Polish people. And we don't really care about them. They're just a good way for us to make money. And even just a glimmer of that idea would be destructive for the, the kind of collaboration we're trying to get, which is to have people that, you know, we think that people, to, to build good software, you need these really good collaborations, you know, and partnership peer-to-peer relationship with the folks who have the business ideas, with the folks who are trying to actually put their products on the market. So what this means in terms of how we structure ourselves is 
when we look at what the profits we make as a company, we split them between basically everyone in the company who's been there more than six months. So it's kind of like, it's it's a little like the, we kind of have a model which is a bit like the law firm model, except the law firm model, you have a lot of associates as well. So it's like, think of a law firm with, you know, you have senior partners, you have junior partners. It's not a completely flat in terms of how people are rewarded and so on, but still everyone has the same kind of stake in the company and trying to move towards having the same relationship with the company. Like, I don't want it to feel like it's my company because that actually would limit our success as opposed to creating the most opportunity for everyone to be successful. Tom, I I just know from... I was interacting with your company about four or five months ago when I'd met uh, Raffle. Richard, you've met some of the senior guys at U2I who are active in the community. And I met Raffle and I had a job that I needed done. And unfortunately, it wasn't the same technology, which is actually something I'd like to dive into next is technology that you guys operate on. So the fit wasn't right for the job, but I was very impressed going in at the ownership that your employees, really partners or whatever you, I don't know how you refer to your coworkers or or whatever, but uh, I was really impressed with the overall culture and the sense of ownership that they took. They truly were treating it as if it was their company. That was what really impressed me with the level of professionalism. And actually I got a lot out of uh, meeting with them and talking to them. And and we've actually remained friends with your uh, senior members just through community events and things like that. So I will tell you that you're actually getting what you're saying you're getting from experience from your team. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because I think, I mean, a lot of this, I'm very much the kind of person who, who, rather than coming up with a vision and executing it, is more the kind of person who figures out what we did and then kind of just, let's do it a bit, let's do it more. You know, like we found some ideas that kind of seem to work. Like how do we really sort of just turn the knobs up to 11 and really do this for real? So the autonomy and the independence really just came from the fact that we were working as people starting a business from the States. You have to have people in the office who are self-sufficient and don't need somebody looking over their shoulder. So pretty quickly, we started to get a a pattern of the people who were successful at U2I were the people who were able to be self-sufficient. So that's the genesis of that part of the culture. Honestly, like the profit sharing employee ownership actually came from a tactical way of trying to compensate people better after the crash in 2008. It's like, how can we, the dollars was he raised had gone completely in the wrong direction for a US-based firm with US-based clients. How can we compensate people with the risk? It's like, we thought it might get even worse. So, you know, we thought it was like two to one at the time. Maybe it could be one to five to one. Maybe it could be one to one. So we came up with this profit share model as a way of giving people better compensation without having a increasing our fixed costs so much but in the end it's actually turned out to be a really good way of creating the sense of of shared ownership and then it was a question of saying wow we've, we're kind of sort of doing this why don't we really do it? make it make it a policy could you just give a few number people who are in cracker might be aware of the number of people who work for you but for someone listening from you know i don't know lima peru or or, or venezuela or hanoi can you give a few numbers like the number of people you've got your sort of revenues per head or, or revenues or how big is the profit you share out and are you incredibly egalitarian so if the company makes an extra million dollars the guy who's worked there six months gets exactly the same profit share as you or, or is there some way in which the fact that you've got the you were the founder means that you're the guy with the yacht and the ferrari and everyone else is like uh hitchhiking to work uh, 
yes, probably somewhere between those two extremes. I'm starting at the beginning of that long list of questions. I think, actually, what was the first? Okay, re- re- revenue, number of people, profitability. Re- revenue, number of people. Number of people is, I think it's about 45 right now. Okay. Um, honestly, I'm the wrong person to ask for exact counts. There's, okay, but we're talking approximately. Approximately. So I think we're around 45 people. Revenue is around $4 million a year. Okay. Of that, I think the profit we share out is typically in the order of, it's probably around 40% of that. But then to a large extent, profit share is, I mean, basically 90% of the money that we bring in goes out to the people that work at U2I. I mean, that's the, the fundamental concept between, behind any professional services business, the thing you pay for, where the money is. Basically, to a large extent, we're trying to be an efficient way of getting money from people with businesses to people who write code. I mean, it's uh, you know we're trying to reduce the overheads on that. So we don't actually spend a lot. I mean, we, we have an office. We have a, a small number of support staff. But for the most part, we're trying to be an efficient way of getting money from the from businesses or even ultimately venture capitalists into the hands of people who can build stuff and actually turn them into products and so on. Got it. I'm sure any, anyone who's good at mental arithmetic can immediately start working out average salaries and things like that. But, <laughs> but, but um, I think it, and we don't want to, I think it's, uh, you know, a very good measure for any entrepreneur listening to or want to be entrepreneur listening to this is always think about revenue per head as a kind of measure of productivity, because that basically tells you how much the clients value, value the company. Obviously, it's different if you're making jet planes or high, or ships, the highly capital intensive things compared to make, uh, providing professional services, but you're talking approximately $100,000 per person per year revenue, right? Exactly. I think you make a good point there, which is about the revenue head is actually like if, if I look at one of the questions we, we sort of we, we try and think about is like, how much should we grow? Should we try and grow? Is growth a good thing? Is growth a bad thing? Would we like to do this? And the interesting thing about the profit sharing model is that we don't actually have that much incentive to grow the business in terms of number of people. Like there are some advantages to this in terms of maybe we could we have the ability to take on a more diverse range of clients or better manage some sort of larger clients or something like that. But basically, you know, if we double the number of people, it, broadly speaking, we're sharing out the profits between twice the number of people. So it doesn't really benefit anyone that much to just grow for the sake of growth. So. Contrary to a lot of organizations in, in our position, I mean, it's you can argue about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but we really don't have the incentive to grow to 5,000 people because that's not the thing that actually drives financial reward. What you said is actually the most important thing, which is that increasing the value to our customers is. Well, so if you increase the value per person working in the company, then you're actually increasing the rewards to people. So we're strongly incentivized to keep working on our value, on becoming a little better at what we do. And I mean, and in terms of the way I define that, this is actually the value from working from working with us is in terms of can we actually make our clients' businesses more successful? Everything has to be tied back to that. If we do that well, we increase our value, we increase the perception of value, and that's ultimately how we do better. Yeah, I, I think it's a very important lesson for anyone for, because we try to like think of what 
people might not know that in the context of a business structured like UTI, every extra person should ultimately, to be good for the people who work there, should be increasing average revenue per head. So if you get a new guy who comes in who's so good in terms of training, sharing know-how, that like you end up being able to invoice not $100,000 per person per year, but 110, that person will be very popular. <laughs> Everyone will be glad. But it, of course, it's not just about money. I don't think we should stay on money for too long because you know, once people are comfortably off, many things other than money are important. But up to a certain limit, it's extremely important. And above that limit, becomes a bit marginal. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, one of the consequences of being being employee owned is actually answering. So, you know, if you think about the, a business, ultimately, is operated for the benefit of its owners. If you're running a business, ultimately, you're talking about some kind of value for the owners of that, for the owners of the company. The owners of the company are maybe investors. They may be putting in their investment. They may be putting time in. Ultimately, you're looking at what the rewards you actually want to get as owners. You know, there's a lot of things you can do within that. You can look at working really well together, creating good environments, creating good cultures. But you're still, at the end of the day, looking at what returns can I get to the ultimate owners of the business. So that's a really interesting thing when you look at, well, what happens when everybody is an owner of the company? What are we doing this for now? And I think, you know, you sort of hit the nail on the head there, which is, well, one piece of this is money. We do want to be like, we do want to get take money home because we show up every day. We do want to, you know, we do want this to actually pay for us to have the kind of, you know, lifestyle we want to have and so on. But that's not the only important thing. For sure. So actually that then comes into what kind of clients do we want to work with? We Maybe we actually want to work with clients that give us uh, better opportunities to do interesting things. And maybe sometimes you choose. Maybe sometimes you're choosing between better guaranteed revenue um, and more interesting opportunities. You know, these are this actually can be a real trade-off. And you know, being employee-owned definitely gives us more of a set, more of a tendency to go a bit for the latter, a bit for the focus on the more interesting opportunities rather than going after going after money. I mean, I tend to think that the more interesting opportunities are where the money really is anyway, so it, it sort of doesn't matter. But sort of going after your heart in the short term will pay off for your pocket in the long term. But, you know, we definitely have this, like, it, we're running this for the good of ourselves. So we want good projects to work on. We want to make some money, but it, it needs to be because we're doing something that we actually get. Very often these interviews turn into like an advert for the company. And obviously you might find you get a certain number of CVs flowing in as a result of this. And if you do, that's only right and good. We're in favor of a competitive market in all areas. So the question is, what sort of people do fit in and what sort of people don't fit in? And obviously, if you have attractive terms and conditions, you might get people who want to work for you who don't actually fit. And what sort of things do people do when they get to get fired? And how often, like, there's this idea of, like, if someone doesn't fit, you should maybe get rid of them very quickly. What sort of people would you like to discourage from applying? And um, how often, how does your recruitment process work? How often do you get it right and how often do you get it wrong? We try and be brutally businesslike in this, but we're really bad at firing people. <laughs> so don't forget, don't forget you. Don't get all your employees are listening to this. Choose your words carefully. I say we're, we're bad at it, but we, we sweat it really, really hard. Like we really try and work hard at this. We try, we really try and help people progress and figure out what the challenges are, and become the person that they can be. But at the same time, we try and make sure that we are investing our effort in it in, in a good way. So I think to your point about hiring, we really try and find people who are going to be a good fit. But at the same time, we really look for a diversity of good fits. So we're not looking for just sort of like a uniform. It's actually kind of easy if you're you know, a software shop to kind of get like a very narrow idea about what's, what kind of people you want. But 
we really find that having a wide diversity of people actually really helps. So it tends to be the thing that you need to be successful is actually you need, you know, it really helps to be smart and talented, but there are many ways to be smart and talented and also be willing to, um, to get invested, to be invested in actually what our clients are doing, to be invested in, in making the company better, making it a better place to work, you know, all that kind of stuff. Tom, one, one thing that's really interesting, I'm going through HR in my own agency, and it's really interesting. I've never, I, I forget who told me this, but it was uh, not to hire based on resume, but based on character traits. How do you view that in a very technical sense? Because as a developer, there's a huge skill set that you need to recruit for. Um, what's more important to you? Is it coding, you know, quality of code, code CV, or is it something else like teachability, culture fit? Uh, how, how do you go through that process as a software house? So I think your point about not hiring for the resume is good. I mean, we generally, like, this is, resume is a useful data point. It's a good way of figuring out what to ask people about. But at the same time, it does just because you've worked for three years doing something, it doesn't mean, that doesn't necessarily mean something. It would definitely be interesting to find out what you got from that three years. But does that say that, okay, you that means you're like X and we can now compare you to other people who've also done this? No, not, not so much. I think in terms of coding, we do actually pay a lot of attention to how well you can code. But I mean, that's as much as that as anything about how do you think about this stuff. This is we do do software, so how you think about software is actually really important. And we're probably not teach going to teach you from scratch how to be a programmer. Like that's a this is a ten fifteen year project, not a not something that you can kind of just teach you know like this. But at the same time, we really don't care that much about what languages you've written in. We don't have an expectation. Oh, we're you know we don't say okay we're hiring a Java programmer and you will now work on Java programs for the rest of your life. We're hiring Rails programmers. You will work on Rails things. We see you know we try and see the value in you know we see the profession as being writing software, not the specific tool that you're using. So you know we have a which might be a horrible assumption in some people's eyes. You know which is like. As long as you get enough support and you get to work with experienced people, the fact that you don't know this particular language isn't that important. Very interesting indeed. You know, so as long as you're not as long as you're not expected to go be firing all four cylinders on day one, that is actually totally reasonable to say, yeah, this is a new language. You haven't written this before. We'll give you the support you need, and in a few months you'll be good at this. Do, do, do you use things like Codility or other testing tools in the recruitment process? Yeah, we use Codility. Okay, it's a, it's a very interesting company. I'd like to interview them if you've got a contact there. Um, I'm looking, but I have a I have a contact there, Richard. I'll set them up for a future interview. They're here in Warsaw. So no, I mean, they're, yeah, they're really impressed. And the way their website used to be really funny. It's I'd become much more professional looking, but less entertaining. There was this wonderful thing about like, you know, what should you do if your candidates are a few to be tested saying they're above it and they said you should consider whether whether or not you want to work with people like that in the first place because anyone who's good at coding won't mind being tested there was another one about how people shouldn't be afraid of um sorry just saying that what are you are not going to find about about the soft skills like whether people will fit in and they said no we only find out if people can code but if you're hiring someone for a coding position this is something you really want to have well addressed right yeah and that's absolutely right i mean it's really important to know from that kind of test what you're testing for, and this is both valuable and totally not enough. So you're really going to find out if someone, I mean, I mean, ultimately, like any test, you're finding out if someone's good at fertility type tests. 
you know, this is actually a pretty useful data point. And given that there's so many potential candidates out there, you've got to have some way of getting the list down a bit. At the same time, we're not looking at the, we only want the people who are like super high scores on the Codility test. If you get a lower score, but it's still demonstrating something good about your ability to program, that's still good enough to have an interview, which is when we find out about all the other things. That being able to program is just one bit of being able to be to build software. And I mean, this is particularly so at U2I because we, our general, our philosophy in working with clients is that we don't have middlemen. So a great way to add overhead and chaos to software projects is to put people in the middle between the person who has the idea or has the requirements. You have some in the middle, and then you have someone who's going to actually code this stuff. So the person in the middle mostly just serves to add noise. So, you know, we really take the approach that the person who client typically, the product owner, client or whatever, um, is talking directly with the people who are actually working on the software, which means there are everyone at U2I, but this is probably scary for lots of people, but everyone at U2I is essentially client-facing. Very good. You know, so we have, it's really important that you have good, good communication skills. And in terms of working together on a team, it's, it's really important you have good collaboration skills. So being able to sort of code is really important, but it has to exist within all these other things. If you can't collaborate, you can't communicate, unless you're building your own product, it's going to be really challenging to, to actually get it, what the real problem we're trying to solve. Okay, and Tom, Tom uh, you, I, I was going to ask you about clients. So you've been mentioning them a couple of times in the last few sentences. I'd be really interested to know what a sort of like typical engagement looks like, whether it's multi-year or single project, and also very interesting how you acquired clients in the past and how you do it now. And uh, although it's lovely to hear word of mouth that's always something that's not so valuable it's valuable for people listening in the sense that they know it's very important to get good references from your existing clients but anything other than word of mouth that you used to, yeah i know but it's okay so <laughs> when you didn't have that available as a tool or if that weren't available just so basically what sort of clients do you work for what's the scale of the engagement and what do you do for them and uh, and how do you find them and actually a final question so i'm asking a whole bunch sam you'll get to go after this is um is what do you do what's your job (laughs) south in new york so starting at the beginning what our engagements look like so i think that's been common since 2000 when we started the company is that our engagements have generally been very very long term so we've had several clients we've worked with you know a 10-year engagement is not crazy at UGI. you know we've really concentrated on building up these sort of really collaborative relationships we try to make sure the business is successful which is a really key thing you know if you want a long-term relationship with your clients Step one, make sure they stay in business. That kind of long-term relationship has always been there. Well, uh, do you have any? I mean, one of my biggest clients is John Deere. It's quite hard to influence the world price of food. <laughs> we, ultimately, the health of uh, health of the farming sector is the key driver of the prosperity of our clients. So, does that mean you work for other smaller clients? And what can you do to make sure that Boeing is successful? I and mean, it's, it's slightly out of your control, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I think the big small company is an interesting one. It, we we never had like a, a bias towards sort of big or small companies. What we found is that. When we did work with big companies, where we would be successful is in these kind of more skunkworksy kind of environments. So I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but this is basically where you have a, an organization that's a little bit aside from the main culture of the company. So we'd be working with some of these big companies, but you know we would be sidestepping the sort of the bureaucratic aspects working directly with business folks you know a lot of big companies you have like a structure of like the 
business folks or the product folks, you know, they then sort of write specs and give them to IT, and then the you know the, the IT department then goes and uh, finds vendors to work on them, and then you kind of work through IT, but then IT works with things, and it's all a big mess. So where we found we were successful in big companies was collapsing that relationship creating sort of a tight-knit team where we have a collaboration between the business and the and you know our folks and that's we were able to be more successful that way but i mean i think you know one of the conclusions that we said we sort of came to is that this was pretty good but ultimately a lot of the time it's it's pretty hard to be successful in that in the long term because the large organization obviously isn't always that supportive of those kind of things. Sometimes they're not going along with corporate strategy. And to your point about Boeing, it's really hard for us as little old, little 45-person vendor to influence a how a big organization works, so an organization of thousands of people. So we find, we find ourselves able to be more successful, more directly successful in that way with small organizations where the organization is small enough that we can actually directly influence how software is built at that organization. So where we can actually look at what the premises are for developing software as opposed to fitting into models which don't necessarily necessarily the most supportive of the realities of building software. You know, there's a lot of traditions in corporate software development which don't really align that well with what software is really like to develop and how you actually really turn software products into successful business. Uh, can you give any examples of like a sort of client engagements where it's really ticked all the boxes in like a sort of a client where you thought from the beginning it was going to be good and it was good and what value you brought from that? I don't know whether you're published or describe, you're happy to name clients who you work for, but you know, if you couldn't say who it was, you could say it was a, a firm of lawyers or a chain of vets or whatever. It, you know, you'd like give the sector and the type of business, even if you can't give the name. Our most successful client, I mean, you know, we were talking about sales, you know, how do we sell? We actually took like a five-year sales holiday just because we had one client that was really, really successful. So the entirety of our growth, broadly speaking, went towards growing with this client. So this was a client that we started with, you know, it was the CEO slash founder slash product owner slash one guy with an idea and did a very small project for him. And we took him through several rounds of funding and an acquisition. And we now have, I think, probably 25 people working for this client. So this is probably our, our biggest success in terms of taking something that was, you know, that didn't exist at all and turning it into a real robust success. So do you say 25, 25 people are working? So there's more than half your company on one client? Yeah, more than half the company, yes. There are reasons this could be a bad idea. Right. Um, <laughs> But it's it's more it, the, the reasons it's a good idea are currently outweighing the ones ones why it's a bad idea. But we are working on it. Okay, but and, and does that mean you effectively you're almost like you're the technology department of this company? It's like you're actually part of their business that they'd be hard. Exactly. It might not be a good idea for them either. Right? It, might be, it might be quite risky. And, and, and ultimately, this is this is this is the pattern that through, even through this acquisition. So this, the company I'm talking about is um, is Nielsen. So they're the TV ratings folks. We build their social TV analytics app. Mm -hmm. But yes, we function, we essentially function as the tech group for this organization. In, in terms of like, uh, 
So that's, I wasn't expecting that. So there's one company which is like really critical to your success, but um, you're critical for their success too. So it goes, goes both ways. What are other sort of typical things, you know, other projects you're proud of that aren't obviously being more than half your company? It's obvious, but are there other sort of types of businesses? And like, how big are they? What sectors are they in? What sort of things do you do for them? We've had a long relationship with the ed tech sector. Okay. So this and this was mostly through larger corporate clients, but basically looking strategically is what we're trying to do at the moment in terms of new clients is actually using the fact we've got one big client to jumpstart the sort of more aggressive, more interesting work. So you know we have kind of a basis of stability, which you know as any business owner should know, this is an opportunity to figure out what the next things are. So you know this window will last some indeterminate amount of time, but nothing lasts forever. So what we're really trying to do right now is jumpstart sort of the next one, essentially. There's something that's a little bit similar to us uh, compared to a venture capitalist or maybe an angel investor would be a better analog. That, you know, we're trying to find companies who can be successful and can be those sort of really successful clients, you know, long term. And obviously, not every client we're going to work with is going to fit this category. But, you know, I like to think that hiring its a pretty good indicator that you're going to be successful is you hired us. I know that's slightly conceited, but uh, this is my hope. So what we're trying to do now is really find mostly sort of a fairly early stage startups who don't need, who, where they need an entire technical organization. So where we can actually maximize the, their ability to be successful by essentially defining how we do technology at this company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we find it a lot easier to work with companies who actually don't have CTOs because, you know, essentially we supply vision for how you run technology as well as the ability to actually do stuff too so and, and that's a lot easier to connect together when we're engaged directly with the ceos directly with the, with the product owners and so on so what we're aggressively trying to do now is find these smaller companies which will eventually become bigger companies and because of our history and working with some bigger edtech um, space companies or actually old school educational publishers actually we actually have quite a lot of contacts so this is the word of mouth thing we have quite a lot of contacts in the you know in the edtech startup space so we have our two most recent clients have both been educational technology startups okay so those are like two areas you've got like tv ratings and edu- so people listening who are in those sectors either in sort of like tv rating and ac nielsen's a huge company so this is obviously one little division of it right it's not you, you, it's, yeah it's, it's one little tv piece yes. <laughs> And, and was that a startup that was acquired by them or something like that? Because I, I don't think... Exactly. Okay, okay. Exactly. I so got it. We were, uh, the startup was, was called Social Guide, and they were acquired, I guess, two years ago, maybe three years ago. So you have to do sort of due diligence on the startups you work because I know quite a few developers. I mean, because one of the advantages of working for startups is they're not that good at purchasing, so they can and they've got a lot of money from some uh, not very intelligent angel investor sometimes. So, so they could, and this is a stereotype, but you know, you get a young a young man or wo- woman or crew who you know they've got a couple of hundred thousand dollars or zloty from somewhere, and they just like blow it on the, the friendly developers who they went to college with, and obviously once that money's gone. Unless they're unless they're one of the few startups that succeed because most fail, then you've got a constant need to acquire new clients, and you've obviously yeah. avoided that. Is that because you're making a very careful assessment of whether you think the startup will succeed before you engage in the first place? We're spending an increasingly long amount of time ahead of actually starting work, really getting to know the businesses, and really helping. Like one of the important things when you're building technology is focus. I mean, this is about running a business, but it's especially true when you're building technology because the difference between being the startup who spends money and gets to, I mean, basically, if you have a bucket of money you've raised from somewhere 
or you've taken out of your own pocket or wherever you got it from, you need to get to a place where you can, you're can. you either getting in revenue or you can raise more money or you give up. Like Those are the choices. You need an incredible amount of focus to get turn that bit of money you have into the thing you need. So it's really easy when you're building software to say, what are all the things we need? And then you spend all the money on this and then you haven't made any progress really in figuring out figuring out more about your business and really getting to the point that you've proved that you're onto something either by literally getting revenue in or by at least demonstrating something that is good enough to take to, to actually get a, a more serious round of funding or something like that. So it's a really key thing that we try and do is actually really just help. We just want to keep talking until the area of focus narrows down to something that is really achievable and will actually do something valuable for the business in that time frame such that you've got something tangible to get that next round of funding to even start getting some revenue in. So really trying to get the best out of every dollar or Zwati or it's mostly dollars for us, but... Uh, Yes, and how did you get your clients? So, and how many have you got? Like ten clients or fifty? Because it, it could be if you're just like working for three or four or five clients, and that's enough to keep you all busy, and you're not looking to grow fast. You don't need a sales and marketing department at all. You're just like, which you know, depending on the objectives of the business, is a is an acceptable and even preferable way to live. If you're so important to your clients that they they're sort of they completely your part of their business process but do you have anything to say about how you found your clients did you just get lucky or was it something that other people could learn from in your story i think i mean ultimately we've always tried to do really good work we build up really really strong relationships with our current clients we work really really hard the easiest client to sell to is the client you already have and so if we can keep those clients you know making lots of money keep them successful then that's by far the easiest part of the sales process the second is probably you know, when we do get introduced to people, it is usually word of mouth. I'm trying to think of it. I mean, there's a tree I have in my mind of can kind of trace through all of our clients back to a previous client, back to a previous client, back to a previous client. You know, it's very rare that you get something that's completely, we get something that's completely out of the blue. There's always a connection. But that doesn't mean that sales isn't important. So for me, sales, for us at U2ICE, sales and marketing is actually much more about connecting it's as a complement to word of mouth rather than as you know completely separate from it. So this is how you take word of mouth a little further out from like someone who's literally, you know, it's like if someone's literally worked with you, they might just say, look, let's just get going on this. Um, and, you know, and this has happened. But then once you get, you know, it's like when you, you're talking to someone who knows someone that's put in a good word, you still have to sell to those people. This is not for free. And, you know, so I think when you're looking at the network, we're really looking at, you know, using these tools to sort of broaden out from our core network as opposed to really just sort of going completely off piste and finding people who have no connection with anyone we've ever worked with. Just a few quick questions. I'm actually uh, very interested in the development side just because I've had developers in my organization of varying qualities, most of them very good, but you know, you can't see the difference between good and great. I forget who it was. I think it was Bill Gates who said the difference between a good and a great developer is 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 an order of magnitude of a hundred times. What's your experience on that? I mean, to get truly great results and have high revenue per head, which Richard brought up earlier, how do you have a great developer? And great developers, do you train them or do they come in great? It's always a bit of both. So you try and get really good people and then you try and create a culture which is conducive to good development. I mean, I think you know, the, the one caveat I would say to the Bill Gates' comment there is that not only do you need good people, you need a context in which you can actually do good work. 
you can take really good developers and have a crappy situation and everyone can come out pretty depressed with that. So there's this really important part in terms of, you know, A, setting up an organization. What we say is setting up our organization to make to make software development a thing that you can do really well. But then that also translates to how we actually set up our engagements with our clients. Like we need to set up our engagements with our clients such that we can we can do software the best we know how. As opposed to trying to fit things into broken models, trying to do things within structures which are ultimately not conducive to good software development. But then if you want to keep good people, that stuff really helps too. So good people will want to work in an environment where they can actually be good software developers as opposed to software developers who are you know, fighting against the man to get a, a little bit of space to get their, get their coding done. So that's, that's a really interesting point, the, the, the environment. Um, I think a lot of people, when they hire outsourced developers overseas, they find a back-end developer because they need something fixed. And then they realize, oh, this guy doesn't know how to build front-end pages, which, which they, don't, they don't really understand the difference. And I'm talking from experience, having managed developers for four or five years now. I think the one big lesson I learned about that is the power of putting a couple of great developers together in a team that has established processes and procedures in place and they really know how to work together. And it, I mean, I should have known this having come from an army background, how important it is to have, you know, the power of a small team that knows how to work together is infinitely more powerful. And as a software developer, you really, if you use the military analogy, you really want to be the special forces guys and not like the first world war sends a million troops who are onto the battlefield with the expectation that three quarters of them are dead at the end of the day. Yeah, like a, like a big Infosys or some big outsourcing company in, in India. And I think that was really important. The things that you struck on was the team and the processes. And I think, uh, you know, anyone listening to this, if you're thinking about hiring outsourced developers, I, I think a big competition for outsourcing right now is for the Polish ecosystem is India, because you can get developers for a little bit less of, of an hourly rate. But in my experience, looking at an hourly rate is almost useless when you talk to developers, because well, of course you can find someone who will accept money for $10 an hour, but what are they going to produce? And I've had great designers in Poland and great developers who've produced. Yes, they cost more and they weren't that big of a discount to you know what you could get maybe even in New York City, but they work three times more productively. And I think you know, people should really look at the output rather than the uh, some arbitrary time measurement of what their time costs. And I think if you're looking at, I mean, if you're looking at this the right way, the way I look at it is basically... There are no prizes even for getting any work done. Like, the fact that you spent all day at the office doing something just quite possibly doesn't mean anything at all. You know, so as software developers, it's important to work on the right things and do them well. We can't do a bad job. We can't write lots of bad code that just gives the business inertia and they can't adapt to the changes. But the most important variable in terms of what we do as software people is figuring out the right things to work on. In terms of like productivity, you can turn that knob a bit. The really big knob you can turn is what you work on. If you work on the right 10% of stuff, you can do things 10 times as fast. That's where the really big numbers are in terms of multiplier. So if you want to increase your value, it is really important to be working on the right stuff, which is where we really try and focus on educating our clients to be really, really disciplined about prioritization, figuring out where the real value in their businesses are, Figuring out, making sure you answer a question about whether something's whether you answer that you answer questions as cheaply as possible 
rather than just assuming that I've got this brilliant idea, let's spend half a million dollars on this, I'm sure it'll be fine. One of my formative experiences was with an early client of mine where I was just an independent consultant. They had just spent $120 million building a product that 60,000 people were using. And forget whether it was going to make its money back. This wasn't even close to making money. So it's really instructive to look at there's actually no limit to the amount of money you can spend doing things that don't teach you anything that you learn nothing from and that don't deliver any value to any end customer ever. Right. No limit on that in, that in that amount of money. So whether you're dealing with customers who have a budget of $10,000, $100,000, a million dollars, $10 million, you still need to be focused on how do we actually figure out the right things to work on? How do we make good decisions about that? And how do we tie all this development work we do back into making the, the business more successful and not getting distracted on like how well can I build this spec and I don't care how well you can build a spec did you do something that added value to the business that's really the only important question and if you want to compete against low-wage economies that's the only way you can do it because you can't compete by working hours like if you're being measured on how many hours you work you're always going to lose to a cheaper economy if you're being measured on how much value you create for the business that they're the sky's the limit so the only way to, to win in that game I think yeah, and, and I like to I like to tell people they they say oh wh- why'd you come to Poland because the the wages are not as high as the U.S. and I say well well actually I paid a lot less money in Asia for development and some other things and I just came here for quality I think Poland's really the sweet spot for value delivered pound for pound dollar for dollar whatever you think it's going to deliver more value than anywhere else and that's just my experience and why I'm here. Also, also, I'm just looking at the numbers and just back of an envelope, if it's around $100,000 ahead and there are 200 working days a year, you're talking around 500. Obviously, not everyone in your company is invoiced to clients, but it's around 500 bucks a day. You know, that's not as cheap as, I mean, it's not like super high rates, right? It's, I mean, for a Western client, it's still, you know, you're paying a sort of what someone might get as a salary and you're getting the quality of a company more or less, I would have thought. Exactly, exactly. And I think one thing we've always tried to, like just in terms of our own operation, it almost works as a joke, but I mean, I think it's actually completely true that we try and be an efficient way of taking money from investors and turning it into software. The fewer sort of sucks you can have on or taking that money somewhere else, the easier it is to do this because you're just not ending up this money from not being distributed elsewhere. So this extends to trying to keep our overheads, you sort of institutional overheads low, you know, being not having so much structure and sort of support staff. You have a lot of support staff to pay just to get some development done and then within the structure of our projects where we try and run really lean processes where we devote enough but just enough time on creating structure on creating process without creating like a huge infrastructure around most of the dollars do get converted into someone actually working on software Yes, I, I think that that's right. I was thinking if someone's listening to this as an entrepreneur who like has funding, so and they're thinking, hmm, I wonder if uh, UTI, this guy sounds intelligent, he's probably thinking, and UTI, I wonder if UTI might be a partner. What sort of, sort of size of engagement? Do you have like a minimum size of engagement? Is it like 10, 20, 30,000 bucks away? You say, well, below that, it's not really going to work for us. So uh, do, they, do you have like, a, if you imagine them thinking, well, effectively, I need a technical co-founder, I, I can't find one UTI as my technical co-founder, what's my budget for UTI to make that happen? The, the way I tend to look at it is if you're building, if you're a startup and you're building a technical team, so this is, if you're thinking like how any important product has been developed, you're not going out and buying a project 
you're setting up a technology team. So what we would look at is basically what's the ongoing cost for this and then how can we turn this into learning as quickly as possible? Now, one thing we can do, and we have done in the past, it's a bit easier for us to go dark than, you know, if you actually hire a development team. So sometimes you work, 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 but then you have, you then, then it's like, actually, I don't have the next round of money yet. Uh, I need to go work on this for a while. So we have had customers who have needed to go dark for a while. But broadly speaking, you know, we're trying to set up a sustainable pace. We're trying to be a marathon runner. Developing any kind of technology-based business is basically trying to keep something sustainable over the long period, over the long term. So you end up talking about what's the ongoing cost per month more than like what's the actual size of the overall buckets. I mean, for me, I look at somebody who comes to me with a small bucket of money, and it's really just a question of can we get you to the next stage? Because if you can do that, then the bucket is infinite, right? If you can do that for a company that has prospects, that has the opportunity, you know, I basically, I look at you when you come to me with $50,000 and I see $10 million. You just don't know it yet. This is the kind of success that, you know, success for us is really success, is on the back of some kind of success. So in that sense, we generally don't look for commitments. If we can get something going that where we can kind of set things up for a few months just to kind of get things sort of underway. And then you're making a, su- a succession of follow-up investment decisions. Do I want to throw an extra fifty, hundred thousand dollars into this? I've proved that I can get this far. Now, and I've I had something which I've been able to show to some people and I'm getting some good responses. I want to spend, a, I want to, you know, pull out of my pocket another pile of money. I've got a, got something to show my angel investment friend who, and he wants to put some more money in or whatever it is. That's kind of the model we're looking at. Okay, got it. That's clear. Okay, well, beginning to come towards the end, but you didn't answer a very interesting question about what you actually do day to day, what your job is. And also, if you could talk a bit about the future where you see yourself and the company going, say, two, five, ten years from today, you've got one of the disadvantages of your structure is it's not so easy for you to just sell the business because it's not yours to sell, right? So what do you actually do day to day and month? So my day to day job, I mean, it's, it's kind of been evolving over time. I'm sure a lot of founders of companies, you kind of start off with like your dictator and you control everything and everything kind of is revolves around you and you, you hire, yeah, you hire good, smart people, but ultimately everything comes down from the top. So the real transition for me sort of as how I try and lead the company has been to try and undo a lot of that, those sort of habits, both in myself and in the people who work and in everybody else. So, you know, what, what I think you were seeing, Sam, when you were in the office is the result of that kind of process where you're seeing there's lots of things that happen I just don't know about. This is actually what I want. You know, it's like it's really important that I don't even really want to be a benevolent dictator. You know, I want to be providing leadership, but ultimately for people to be, you know, making their own decisions, not having to run everything up the chain, being able to be independent and all that kind of stuff. Over time, I've been sort of taking my getting out of the kind of operational model. So I've been transitioning those roles to people who are frankly better at it. And for a lot of the operational stuff, it really helps to be in the office in Cracker. I'm just not there. So to the extent operations is about coordinating people and making sure that, you know, everybody's on the same page about things and making sure that decisions are made well. I'm often just not the best person to handle that sort of thing. And so over time, my focus has been more in trying to create some, my big focus is in actually trying to really push the boundaries of how we're actually working with our clients and essentially what our product as a company is. The best things for me to do are often working with our new clients, setting up the appropriate structure, creating the model, talking with our clients about how to think about how they run their business in the context of building technology-based products, providing leadership, but not management, if you see what I mean. Well, I've got a couple of follow-ups then, which is the future. where And I think everyone listening to this who's got their own business, please 
think hard about what you've just heard because it's really important to like not be a key part of day-to-day business processes if you're leading a company because the more you do that, the more dependent the organization is on you and the less you can take the company in new directions and work on the bigger picture. So I think it's really important to think hard about what that means for your business if you're listening um, and you're in business or you want to have a business. And you mentioned right at the beginning that you kicked off your career playing the piano to finance your coding. One of the things I want to do is to recreate the pub pianist tradition. I'm wondering what sort of piano, and I'm thinking of like a pub pianist of the year competition next year. Are you a potential uh, candidate to win this competition or do you play a different type of music? Oh, pub, pub, yeah. You mean like British pub piano? Well, yes, we're like bar music encouraging like where the piano is the center of entertainment for the venue. Uh, like the piano man, like Billy Joel. You, you sit in there and get everyone singing, right? I mean, so my style, the root, the most important part of my style is actually New Orleans piano. Okay. And I think this can fit as like, you know, this is a bass. I mean, they wouldn't call it a pub in New Orleans, of course, but no. um, the place with beer in. Um, kind of piano, I think. Uh, I think uh, absolutely. So yes, I don't know whether I would win, but I could certainly. Hit, so. Okay, so when are you next in Krakow? Uh, I'm in Krakow in probably two weeks, I think. Okay, well, we may not get this process up on the web before then, but if I can line up a venue, this is a slightly unusual direction for a Project Hashimir's interview, but I think that's a very nice thing to end on. I'm done now, so thank you. I, I'll go very soon, but thank you very much for your time. By the way, it's 2016. If you're listening in a, a thousand years' time, we're in a country called Poland, and uh, we're human beings. I don't know if that's going to be the case in a thousand years' time. I think we can guarantee Poland will be there. Yep, it, and, and America, if Trump's not elected, might still be there in a a few years too (laughs) yeah we're very internationalist here and we believe in breaking down walls not building them (laughs) yeah so well tom just uh just wanted to thank you and summarize with the lessons for the listener i think anyone listening to this will definitely learn uh, a lot about how to build a great organization which i certainly know just from having walked in your office you can tell right away when you go into an organization get a sense of of the culture and i was very impressed and uh it certainly reflects the fact that you hire good people and trust them and that you let them grow into their roles. And I think that's one of the hardest things for founders to learn as they grow is, is how to delegate. I think it really sets people apart. And uh, thankfully, the U.S. Army forced me to do that. But um, anyone who does it in business and just learns that naturally, you know, you have the guts and the, the determination to start a business from scratch. And then as you evolve, you mature and learn how to delegate. I mean, I would just add that like, learning to do that was really, really hard for me. I mean, I wouldn't even say I've been successful yet. You know, this is absolutely a work in progress. You know, trying to be not in control of everything is really, really hard, but absolutely worth doing. So I echo that. Totally. Yeah, and I think any, any founder listening to this would really learn a lot from them. Thanks for the caveat on there. You're not natural at this and you're learning it. Uh, so if you want to learn it, I think Tom's a great inspiration. And also uh, your example of putting your employees first. I know a lot of people say the customer comes first. I think the truly great business leaders know that your employees come first and, and then the customers after that. Because if you have a great culture, you'll attract great customers. If you deliver great results, solve great problems for people, you'll always have customers. Thanks for those lessons. Tom, thank you for joining us and really look forward to seeing you at a bar in Krakow playing the piano with a bunch of Polish and some expats standing around you singing and I hope I'm one of them. So, Okay, bye guys. Bye-bye. Thanks very much.
Thank you for listening to this episode. This episode was produced by Adam Zuba with audio editing by Piotr Rabi, show notes by James Matheson, and transcription by Thomas Severin. To find the show notes and all the other things mentioned with the podcast, go to our website, projectkajimej.com. You can also sign up there for our newsletter and get notified of the release of our future episodes right on your email inbox. If you feel that you're getting great value from this podcast, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review on our iTunes channel. It certainly means a lot to us and will help other people find out about this information and help grow the ecosystem in Central Eastern Europe. Thank you again. Talk to you soon with my co-host, Richard Lucas. This episode is brought to you by James Cook Media. I founded James Cook Media when I moved to Poland. James Cook Media is a full-service digital marketing and sales agency. Our mission is to bring world-class products to the global English-speaking market. The thing that I've noticed in Poland is how many amazing, talented companies there are building great products, and they're struggling to get traction in the international English-speaking market. I think that's a shame, and I want to help these companies get their products to the market. Silicon Valley parlance, you would call us growth hackers. My team of specialists that I've trained from the beginning here in Poland builds from scratch custom marketing funnels. This includes ideal customer visualization and profiling, complete branding, visual identity, videos, music, website and landing page copywriting, landing page and website design, marketing video commercials, sales videos, testimonial videos, as well as custom written music podcast productions like this one. Content marketing, search engine optimization, website optimization, and paid media traffic campaign design, management, as well as optimization and Instagram ads. So that's a lot. But I've been doing marketing online now for over 10 years in multiple industries from e-commerce to tourism to software service, digital publishing, money transfer apps, and online sports marketing. Over the course of this time, I founded two separate companies as well as worked for loads of clients all over the world. And I had to learn every part of online marketing. I came to Poland to build my own in-house marketing team for my last business. And I'll tell you that the talent here is absolutely world-class, as good as any marketing talent you'd find in New York City. I personally designed my campaigns, write the copy, direct the videos, do the setup with the project manager and a full-time team of specialists of designers, developers, ad managers, and optimizers to fully manage from start to finish your marketing so you can focus on your product and your business. If you think you'd like to learn more about my company and what we may be able to do for you, go to jamescook.pl and enter your information. You will also find information about meetups that I'm running with Ava Vysotsko of Good Tribe Consulting, where you can learn all about the latest in marketing strategy and techniques. Even when I work with clients, I make sure that they completely understand my marketing philosophy and strategy so that they can have buy-in and ownership of it. Because as a business owner, you always need to completely own your strategy for getting your product to market. But we help you do it. If you're a startup or an investor from outside of Poland and you're interested in visiting Krakow and Warsaw's startup scene in Poland or even moving here to set up your team, James Cook Media also offers high-level concierge services to help companies get set up here. I moved to Poland because I believe East is the new West. For 400 years, brave and trepid entrepreneurs have been going west to the U.S. and the American West for prospecting. Now San Francisco and California is so overpriced and so expensive. The new digital gold rush, as I call it, where you can get the most value for your money in terms of investment is here in Eastern Europe, where you have world-class engineering talent, designers, video makers, artists, graphic artists, and marketers. You can do New York City agency or San Francisco level coding work for a very competitive price. If you're interested to learn more, please go to the website jamescook.pl enter your information and we'll give you more information about how we might be able to help you. 
you know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals. It's about you know um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But but the you know the artists and the designers, the creators is they're very much part of what, we, what we've what we got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you're looking for a place where your your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.